right. So this is the first Sunday of Advent, so we will have a uh, gospel reading from Matthew. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had bet- was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Our sermon text today, we're going to turn back to the Psalms. We're going to look at Psalm 73, continuing our series on the Psalms a bit. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet have almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues stretch through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So, of course, last week uh, we began looking at the Psalms. And part of the reason for doing that is learning how to read them. Uh, they're poetry, and poetry is difficult. Uh, s- the style of poetry is tough. Uh, it- it's harder to work through. The message is, is uh, rarely direct. Uh, 
Uh, you have to work at it. And that's actually kind of the point. Uh, the reason poetry is written the way it is is because it wants to uh, 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 break us out of our familiarity about our acceptance of things. And it wants us to force us to grapple with the world uh, with new eyes. Uh, you know, too often uh, we move through our routine cycles of life. Uh, we don't reflect. And, and the Psalms as a practice are meant to be an antidote to that tendency. Uh, you know, I also talked about like how I think that's uh, why they're so involved in worship, because worship's kind of the same way. It's a break in our daily routine when we can kind of uh, experience the world in a different way. And so it's valuable to work through the Psalms because they help us gain a new understanding of God, of ourselves, and our place in the world. Uh, so they're meant to be thought-provoking. They're meant to be disruptive and ultimately liberating. So, uh, the, so, so that's why the Psalms are valuable. But, um, you know, one of the other points I made is that the Psalms, uh, one Psalm doesn't say everything about, uh, or doesn't say something about everything all the time, all at once. Uh, you know, that's one of the reasons the Psalms is kind of a huge body of work. I mean, there's 150 of them, and they vary quite considerably. Uh, different Psalms are helpful in different situations, and even at different seasons of our lives. And one of the things we talked about, because I thought it was helpful, was that we can divide the Psalms into basically three categories. Uh, yeah, this is the only way we could do it, but I, I think it's helpful, and it's kind of what I'm working through. Um, we called it Psalms of Orientation, Psalms of Disorientation, and Psalms of New Orientation. And if you'll remember last week, we looked at a Psalm of Orientation, where we meditated on the goodness of creation as an ideal. But this week, we're going to look at a song of disorientation, which is going to center on the brokenness of creation, of humanity, of people, of the world. And, you know, it's important. Both of these perspectives are ways we experience life at different times. And so we shouldn't be surprised uh, because the Psalms is such a very piece of work that we are going to come across both. And I think that's the great wisdom of the Psalms. Uh, that we, we find uh, all sorts of, uh, of different ways uh, that we may feel in the world. Now, I selected this Psalm, Psalm 73, for particular reasons. Uh, you know, the Psalms are meant to be an aid to worship. And as we have been discussing, the Psalms are situational. They address like specific seasons of life. And so this Sunday is pretty significant, right? Uh, this is the Sunday right after Thanksgiving. So we've got Thanksgiving on our mind. We've got, you know, turkey and all the ideas that come along with that. And so one of the things I wanted to talk about is thankfulness. Uh, but this Sunday is also the first Sunday of Advent. And... Even though, you know, this isn't like some kind of biblical precedent, you know, we have a tradition in the church of Advent, and the first Sunday is generally thought of uh, as the theme of hope, uh, where we talk about hope, and specifically in the hope that the Messiah will bring. So, what we're going to do today, and I, I think this is what's going to be interesting about using this psalm, is we're going to look at these themes of thanksgiving and hope but in this context of disorientation. Because I think we all know that the holidays can be a time of disorientation. 
you know, not all our families and celebrations look like the Norman Rockwell ideal. Uh, for many people, they'll filled with disharmony and sadness in which dinner is ruined over arguments. It can be a time of depression. It can be a time of loneliness. And, you know, one of that's one of the problems of the church. You know, we want to be so happy about everything. And yet we have this great uh, body of work that actually says, hey, look, you know, we, we can actually talk about when it's not happy, uh, when things aren't, uh, when, when they're disoriented. Um, you know, this year we can think about the news. Uh, you know, we're confronted with the Thanksgiving set against the backdrop of senseless uh, gun violence. Uh, there's been multiple mass shootings this week. You know, we can still think about, uh, you know, what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, so, you know, we might want that happy, harmonious Thanksgiving of Hallmark specials, but too often... The world takes that from us. So if we turn to 73, we're going to kind of do a deep dive here. I, I, I really enjoyed working through this. Um, so the psalmist confronts us right at the beginning, right at the start, <laughs> with a premise. The premise is, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, I want to point out that the first word here is the Hebrew uh, particle. It's called a particle. It's called af, af. And it means something like only or surely or truly. You know, I think my my translation says truly God is good to Israel. And that's as good a translation as any. uh, Therefore would be a good translation. And I'm pointing this out just, you know, right here because I want us to pay attention to it because it's going to be uh, important. It's going to be one thing that's important in helping us kind of unlock the overall picture of this psalm. Uh, So we'll be coming back to it. But for now, let's pay attention to the premise that the psalmist is presenting us with. So this uh, premise is a statement of faith about God. Uh, It's by someone who is in relationship with God. Uh, It reveals a basic fact that for the psalmist is pretty fundamental to how he understands God. Uh, it's a, it, you would call it like if, you know, if you were thinking about, uh, uh, logic or something like that, you would say that this is kind of like a, an axiom, you know, it's a, a very, very fundamental. God does good to the people who follow him, uh, to the people who trust him, to the people who obey him, to the people who worship him, to the people who are loyal to him, you know, all these things, you know, he considers the pure heart and he uses this term Israel, but I think he's using this term as not like a national or ethnic. This is like the covenant community, you know, it'd be like us saying truly God is good to the church or something like that. Right. So this is a religious statement that this psalmist has internalized. You know, it's pretty, it's kind of like just basic to how he thinks, but it's this premise that is so fundamental to him. That's the source of conflict and the problem of this Psalm. So as we look at verses two through 16, we find that the psalmist's personal experience does not mesh with this premise. The psalmist looks around and sees those outside the covenant community. You know, those people who, who uh, you know, he wouldn't classify as real Israel, uh, people who are not pure of heart. And yet he sees them thrive. So if you look at verse 3, I saw the wickedness well-being. And, uh, you know, if you go down to verse 12, there's several statements about this. If you go down to verse 12, it describes the wicked at ease and their wealth increasing. And so what's going on here is the psalmist is disturbed. 
because this conflicts with the premise in verse 1. So, you know, he looks around, and based on his observation, God is good. Uh, yeah, maybe God's good to Israel. Maybe he is good to the pure heart, but he's also good to the covenant breakers. He's good to the wicked. Uh, and, and so, you know, what conclusion from, can you draw from this? It's that God really doesn't care about justice and equity. You know, what's, what's the point? Um, and, you know, I don't think, you know, on one hand, you could kind of look at this guy like, oh, he's being like pretty whiny, you know, like maybe, uh, maybe this is just like some petty jealousy on the psalmist part, like, you know, shut up and just kind of do your thing and, you know, you be, you do you and just not worry about them. But, you know, the people he's observing here are like bad people. It's not just that they're just like clueless and don't think about God. Um, their prosperity is a result of their evil actions, okay? So, for example, if you look at verse 6, it says that violence covers them as a garment. So, you know, they're, they're, they're using might, they're using power, they're using violence. Uh, verse 8 uh, describes their gain as the result of oppression. And verse 5 and 6 describes the evildoers as free from the problems of the less fortunate, and a res- as a result, they are prideful. So, you know, these are people who are, uh, you know, very much like, uh, you know, I got it my way and, you know, uh, but are are doing that on the backs of other people. Uh, Verse 11 describes them as having no reverence for God. They care only for themselves. And so, you know, you're, you're, you're here with a group of people. They have no personal morality. They feel no duty or obligation to others or toward God. And they actually use this as a way to uh, prosper and enrich yourself. So, you know, these are like not great people. These are the kind of people that like should make us mad. Like we should be upset, you know. We should think of these as, I don't know, like something like a Russian oligarch or something like that. You know, these are bad people. And that's why the psalmist is so disturbed. Uh, the psalmist's faith in the goodness and justice of God is being challenged here. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to note that, I mean, you know, this isn't just like, this, this is doubt, but it's a certain kind of doubt. Because the psalmist, um, if the psalmist did not hold so strongly to this idea about the goodness of God, this really wouldn't be an issue. I mean, this is a crisis of faith because he has faith, you know. Uh, the, the complaints here are a result of his strong faith. And, and, you know, here he is just kind of working it out in like this bare honesty through the Psalms. And, you know, that's one of the things that I think is really cool about the Psalm. And you, you read through it, you're working through it, but, you know, it also gives you permission to work through, you know, what angers you, you know, when you see the world is, is not working like it should. And so, you know, maybe we can sympathize with the psalmist. I mean, why, why are, you know, we can think of examples of, of, you know, the great dictators who are allowed to get away with exploiting their people in order to amass great wealth. And yet uh, they live to an old age and die in their sleep. I mean, that's not fair. You know, think about, uh, you know, not too long ago, we were in a financial crisis, and yet the CEOs of most of these banks that were allowed to uh, extend loans to people wrecking their lives retained their jobs, and even in, in a lot of cases, their enormous salaries and bonuses. So, you know, often we can take examples where, uh, you know, people are, are, are allowed to amass wealth uh, in, in in uh, not so uh, great ways, and they don't suffer any consequence. Uh, in fact, a lot of times they're able to use their wealth uh, to escape prosecution and by their own justice. So, you know, this is the kind of thing the psalmist is upset about. Um, 
Verse 12 is a good summary of the observation of the psalmist. Behold the wicked, always at ease. They increase their riches. And, you know, basically, like, they're at ease. They're, they don't even fear any kind of, uh, like, justice or consequence. They just get richer. Uh, and so from this evidence, what does the psalmist conclude? All in vain have I kept my heart clean. So the word vain here, which is actually not the same vein as in Ecclesiastes, uh, it's uh, translated, uh, you could translate it as emptiness or uh, nothing. Nothing is a good word. Like, you know, basically, I don't know why I'm pure at heart. It's gotten me nowhere. Uh, it, it, nothing good has come out of this. So, you know, for the psalmist, it seems that it doesn't pay to be good. Moral responsibility doesn't get you anywhere. Now, as we go on, uh, so, so, so that's kind of where we are. But if you look at verse 13, and unfortunately you don't see, you don't see it in most translations here. Um, because, yeah, people do a terrible job of translating the Psalms. Um, I mean, they're hard. But verse 13 begins with that word that we talked about earlier, that Hebrew word, af. Okay, so the, the therefore, the, the surely, the only that we read in verse 1. And the reason that's important is because, uh, you know, it wants us, it, the use of this word for the conclusion of this section is kind of trying to remind us of the premise at the beginning of the psalm that God is good to the pure of heart. And the point is, if, if God is also good to those who are not pure of heart, what is the point? So, you know, it's just that that word's just kind of highlighting the conflict here. And it's a good question. And you know, the, the psalm doesn't end here. The psalm doesn't leave us with that. Uh, the psalmist is actually, you know, working through these issues uh, while being honest about his thoughts. Uh, but, you know, what's great is he's not letting God off the hook easy here. You know, he's, he's making a pretty darn good case. The struggle is real. And I think that's what makes the song so great is that, uh, you know, he, we, we get to grapple uh, alongside the psalmist and experience uh, this journey, uh, too. Because, you know, I, I think it, as I read through the psalm, it's like, yeah, I, I totally get this guy's case. Like, I'm, I'm on his side. Like, I'm, I'm there. Um, but what happens here? Well, uh, verses 15 and 16, there's a turning point in the psalmist's thinking. You see, what happens is the psalmist kind of realizes, look, I, I can't just abandon my morality, even if the wicked are allowed to prosper. And the reason the psalmist gives for this is, is incredible. The psalmist realizes that doing so would be a betrayal to the children and the future generations. In other words, what the psalmist is experiencing here is an obligation. You know, he still sees himself as a, is obligated and responsible to future generations, okay? He can't abandon what he feels like his duty to his community. Um, you know, it's just, it's just not in the cards for him. He's like, look, yeah, it may not work, but I don't want to be part of a world where, you know, other people, the future, you know, especially children, uh, see this as like the right way to do things. Uh, and, you know, it's here he's kind of understanding. I mean, what does that mean? He's understanding he's not like an autonomous individual, you know, the way those that aren't pure in heart think. He doesn't wish to live in a world uh, that is uh, created by wicked, even if it means giving up prosperity. 
And it's this realization, I think, that morality is bigger than just getting stuff when you do good or being punished when you do something bad. I think that's the turning point. Um, as he works through these issues, his thinking has involved, evolved past a simplistic world of retribution. I mean, we've been talking about that, that concept of retribution in Job. Um, you know, this is kind of how the psalmist is working through this. Uh, he realizes that morality is more than just about personal reward. It's about being part of a community. It's being about something bigger than yourself and what you get or don't get or what others get or don't get. And it's this realization that changes everything for the psalmist, despite, you know, what at first seems like pretty overwhelming evidence, you know, like that's what's so great about those parallel offs, you know, it, it, it's such a contradictory um, statement um, that, you know, the fact that the uh, psalmist is able to work through this and go on, is kind of actually like shocking. Uh, you know, and the psalmist uh, like realizes his error. I think if you look at 21 and 22, uh, you know, he says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. You know, basically he says, you know, like, you know, once I, once I've changed, once I've seen, you know, come to this realization, I realized that that, that case I made in verses two through 16 wasn't very good. It was ignorant. Uh, and, you know, the ultimate gold's not material gain. Uh, he, he realizes that his thinking was an error. And, you know, that's a good point. And, you know, you know we, we can kind of stop here and kind of go on from there. But, but here's what I think makes this psalm awesome. So, you know, like we talked about in the first 16 verses, the psalmist has made a pretty convincing argument. And all of a sudden it goes to this dramatic change, this new realization. What I think is really cool, what I think is like the important point here and what I want to focus on is that what leads the psalmist to arrive at this new perspective that results in this shift in thinking, you know, he rejects the material, he embraces the relational. What is it that makes him change? It's verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned the end, right? That's, that's, that's the key moment. It, was, it wasn't until he goes to the sanctuary of God. And, and it's something about being in the presence of God, you know, which, you know, in, in the sanctuary of God, it wouldn't have just been him. You know, he's not going into an empty church here. This is, this is amid a worshiping community. And it's here that the psalmist comes to this new realization about the world and its place in it. Um, and it's this setting. It's, it's this sanctuary, the, the sanctuary of God. It's a setting of this that exposes him to this world that is bigger than himself. And he experiences the glory of God surrounded by others. And it moves the psalmist from, from, from his interiority. You know, he's almost like trapped in this loop of negative thinking. But once he comes to the sanctuary of God, he, uh, you know, sees that there's this new world. There's this world of experience that reveals a connectedness to others as well as the divine. And notice the shift in his perspective uh, in verse 18. He starts thinking about the future. Rather than only being able to see the prosperity of the wicked, he now sees their future ruin. 
Um, in fact, it's so certain, you know, it's not written in the future tense, you know, but it's kind of like, it's going to ha- it's so certain it's going to happen, I'm going to write it almost in the past tense. I'm talking about the future as if it's already occurred. And so, you know, it, it's confronting the glory and presence of God at the sanctuary. This, the psalmist is now certain that God's goodness will eventually per- prevail. And, and like I said, it's a new perspective. It gives the psalmist something he did not have before, you know, something that was missing. What was that? It's hope. It, it's this hope that changes everything. And, um, you know, the, the psalm actually does this really cool way to illustrate this. So, you know, just like the first verse started with the, that Hebrew word off, the second verse uh, starts with, but I, okay, but I, all right. And then it goes on to describe how the psalmist has stumbled and his feet slipped. You know, but I, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Like I said, your translation like tries to make it prettier, but trust me, it's like those two words in Hebrew. Then we get to verse 23. And again, we have a but I, like, you know, again, translations trying to make it pretty. Like my, my translation says, nevertheless, I same phrase, same phrase in verse two. Nevertheless, I, and 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 it goes on to describe um, uh, how the psalmist now sees that God is continually with him, right? So so you notice that there's been a shift here uh, as you read on. You know, you're, you're continually with me, and then it becomes you hold my right hand, you guide me in your counsel, you will receive me to glory. Now, the psalmist receives action. God has replaced him as the subject. And now the psalmist is the object. So it's no longer about the psalmist, but it's about God and what God does. So, you know, think about it. In the first half, the psalmist's view of life was that it was about achievement. You know, what you get. Uh, He saw the wicked and saw they had achieved and they were angry. And what the speaker has realized is life is not about gain that one achieves. Rather, life with God is a gift that one receives. See, it's about receiving from God. You know, it's not about I uh, 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 doing things. You know, it's about other, it's about, uh, you know, I living a pure pure heart and, and getting some gain. You know, it's about God giving. Um, and that leads them to realize that there is no other basis in hope in life than God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. So, you know, the psalm ends in this, like, note of thanksgiving. Okay, so there's the thanksgiving part of the psalm. The psalmist reflects on the presence of God in his life and the great gifts he, was, he has been given. And, you know, that's something that he didn't notice at the beginning of the psalms, gifts that were missed when he viewed his life only from the perspective of materialism based on autonomous individual achievement. Now, I know the psalm. I mean, it's an ancient psalm. You know, we always talk about how these things come from such a different culture. It was written more than 2,500 years ago, probably, or something like that, in a world we scarcely understand. But, you know, that kind of sounds like an important message that might resonate with us today. You know, it's possible, maybe just possible, that these thoughts 
that are in the psalm might even be an rampant antidote to the rampant materialism and consumerism that have corrupted a holiday season that begins in Thanksgiving and should center around community and gifts. So as we turn our thoughts toward Christmas and as we begin our first week of Advent, which uh, you know traditionally centers on this theme of hope, as we follow the progression of the psalmist's thoughts, you know, what we've seen here is that hope emerges from a place where the psalmist saw only despair in the world. You know, so one of the applications of the sermon is, you know, the importance of hope. And, you know, I could just say to you, be hopeful. Um, but that seems a bit unhelpful. You know, hope is not something you just like willingly submit, assent to, like learning a new fact. And what I think is awesome about this psalm is that it spends a lot of time working through these issues in this deep inward level so that we can understand, you know, how is it that we get hope? So if we look back through the psalms, it's clear that the turning point takes place when the psalmist enters the sanctuary of the Lord. So it's there that the psalmist finds hope. And, and you know, what is that about? It's encountering the presence of the Lord. And that is what recenters. Uh, him to the view of the world that is filled with grace, with gift. It is encountering the presence of the Lord that shifts his perspective to, to the wilder, wider world of eternity. And it is encountering the presence of the Lord, which occurs in the presence of others, that allows him to see himself as part of a bigger community. So it's entering the presence of the Lord that leads to hope. And from hope, that goes, leads to thanksgiving. And why? Because God's presence has led the psalmist to focus not on himself, but on God and others. So, you know, we can kind of see this like organic way that these uh, themes work together. Now, let's look at our gospel passage here. So, you know, if we look at this passage from Matthew, uh, what we have is Joseph encountering a crisis. You know, he's in the midst of a crisis. All around him, all he can see is the danger posed to himself and his, uh, his uh, betrothed uh, uh, Mary. Uh, you know, he's maybe having a crisis of faith too, uh, uh, just like the psalmist in Psalm 73. You know, not, not the same subject matter, but a crisis nonetheless. And it's amid this crisis that he's given hope by an encounter with the messenger of the Lord, you know, the presence of God now, who tells him, not to fear. Yeah, he's trying to shift his perspective, a perspective from inwardness to, you know, to, to outwardness. Uh, you know, see the bigger picture here. And we learn that the hope is, is not just for him, this hope that the angel is bringing, but it's for others as well. As the angel tells Joseph, the son born to Mary will be named Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. You know, this isn't just about Joseph not fearing. This is about the whole world. Joseph is connected to something bigger, a bigger story, a story more ancient than himself and his own little world, a story that he can only grasp by an encounter with the divine because only the divine can break him out of his, his little world of Nazareth, you know, in carpentry or whatever. And so from now on, Joseph will be able to see this child, not as a threat, but as a gift. And the angel will go on to quote a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. And, 
If you uh, know anything about the background of this prophecy, it was a prosper. It was a prophecy that Isaiah originally delivered to a king who was amid a crisis. And in this crisis, the king saw that the only uh, the only way out of it was by uh, partnering with the wicked Assyrian Empire. That was the only solution because it was the power and the wealth that Assyria had mass had amassed that the king trusted in. The king saw no hope. And so he would abandon the counsel of Isaiah to trust the Lord and instead trust in power and wealth. In other words, it's almost like he went through the crisis of Psalm 73, but he didn't arrive at the same conclusion. He basically was, uh, you know, when it talks about, um, you know, I didn't see any benefit of being moral. Uh, in fact, I, I should just be amoral, like I should just be wicked. That's, that's where the king goes, right? That's what he decides upon. But uh, Isaiah promised that there was a way forward. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And helpfully, Matthew tells us that this name Emmanuel is significant. God with us. You know, why does Matthew translate Emmanuel? Because he wants us to see God with us. And what does that mean? Again, this is about the presence of God. The presence of God that the psalmist found in the sanctuary of God. But it's this presence that, 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 that Joseph found in the angel of God that gives us hope. God is with us. The Emmanuel principle. And it's this presence of God that helps us to see past our limitations, that breaks us out of our small world and gives us this view of something greater. It's this view that forces us to see past the fear and helps us to understand that it's not about me or about us, but God. And and that's what's the key here. So ultimately, What we've learned from these stories is that hope is found in the presence of God. And what God does is he gives it to us. You know, as we think about uh, this Christmas season, uh, he gives us to us in the form of a person. Ultimate hope is found in the incarnation. Uh, Though God, through, through Jesus, God becomes a person who becomes like us who knows us, who relates to us and suffers alongside us. And, and so we get that relationality. We get that, that connection. And it's this Jesus who will teach us and tell us that there are two things that you really need to understand if you're going to live life the way it's intended to be lived. It's a life founded on two things that the psalmist had to understand as he worked through his crisis. Life is a gift. And in order to live it well, you love God and you love your neighbor. And once we realize this, we will be recentered to a life of hope and a life of thanksgiving. So here during the week of Thanksgiving, in the first week of Advent, let us not simply double down on just trying to force hopefulness and thankfulness. Instead, we should do what the psalmist does. Return to the sanctuary of God, to the presence of God and experience what is revealed to us in Jesus Christ, and be overwhelmed by the gift of God.